Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is Nick Mason of Pink Floyd, and I'm giving you some background to the early days of Pink Floyd. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Creative Media. That rainbow prism, those pigs, they can only mean one thing. Yes, Pink Floyd. The name says it all, as does the band's classic timeless music and imagery and overall mood they evoke. They've done it all, and their music speaks for itself. It is transcendent. Perhaps little known is the fact that the only one member of the band who has played on every single Pink Floyd album, from 1967's Piper at the Gates of Dawn to 2014's Meditation, The Endless River, and that member is drummer Nick Mason. Mason has always been the steady hand, using a light touch to allow the band's music shine, but never hesitating to give the punch to provoke the power when needed. And nowhere was that more evident than in their classic song that he co-wrote, Time, from the legendary Dark Side of the Moon album that shot the Floyd into superstardom and celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. Apart from the cacophony of clocks that preface the song, it is Mason who introduces time with an unforgettable percussive opening that is the stuff of legend. It only happened as a result of a moment of studio serendipity. In this episode, and in a rare treat to celebrate Pink Floyd's 50th anniversary and the launch of his upcoming tour with his band Saucer Full of Secrets, I interview Nick Mason about the song Time from Dark Side. We also discussed the tragic story of founding member Sid Barrett's last contribution to Pink Floyd before exiting the band. The haunting song, Jug Band Blues, that ends their second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets. Yes, the name of Mason's new band. Finally, will they? Won't they? Of course I asked Mason if Pink Floyd will ever play together again. So take a listen as we dive into a timeless The Story Behind the Song episode with Nick Mason drummer of the legendary Pink Floyd. You're going to be touring again 
in a couple of months, you're starting to kick off your Saucer Full of Secrets tour in Europe. Yeah, that's right. And really looking forward to it. I mean, we did a lot of shows last year and I loved all of it. So actually, we'll just hope for more of the same. And then after Europe, you're going to Australia. But uh, are you coming back to the States? We haven't got a plan at the moment, but obviously we'd we'd love to eventually tell me a little bit about your journey into just becoming a musician well i had a rather good t-shirt that said some men strive for fame this man loitered into it which <laughs> i think spelt it spelt it out i mean i was always interested in music but I, that was not the path that i thought i was going to to take um as you, people may know basically i started training as an architect mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, fell in with a bad lot because uh, amongst the other students was one Roger Waters and another Richard Wright. And so we just sort of put a college band together, really, in order to play a song that someone else had written. I think that was it. And uh, we we learned this song, played it, and the publisher said, well, the song's not bad, but the band are terrible. And that probably fired Roger up to, yeah. to really get going. And so we, we sort of went from being a college band and almost over a three-month period became the new thing because everyone was sort of looking to see what was going to happen next. It wasn't really us who were going to happen next, but we somehow got swept up in the, uh, in the, in the movement. So what uh, would you... Oh, sorry. What yeah. would you what would you say would be what was it in the very early sound that led to you being the new thing on campus? Well, I think it was probably two things. The first was really Sid Barrett's ability to write. I mean, so much is of rock and roll is made from uh, you know unique writers. Virtually every band that we know and love, uh, they're not playing covers. They're playing their own material. And Sid was a real talent in his own right. And then there was, there was a sort of move towards this. Uh, I hate the word psychedelia, but it's sort of relevant because it was a sort of slightly free form, slightly less related to singles. Up until Sgt. Pepper, the, the industry was run by uh, the idea of having a hit single. And sort of post Sergeant Pepper, suddenly there was a new, completely new look at, at how music worked and what people liked. Suddenly we were away from the 2.5 minute single and uh, able to work in a completely different way. What was the mindset going into it? Did you have any real mindset about it other than what you just said, which was a little bit more free form and not as structured? But was there any kind of thinking at the time when you started that, okay, this is something that I'd like to, I'm an architect student, but now an architecture student, but now I'd like to really pursue a long career in the music world. Or is that not even in your mind no, at the time? It, it, it never occurred to us. I mean, you have to remember that we're talking about sort of 55 years ago. No one thought that anyone could make a living beyond <laughs> a year, if that. In, in the music industry. It was all about sort of teenage kids. And if you'd said to us, you know, 50 years from now, you won't be, uh, you won't be a bank manager. You'll be uh, still desperately making music. I'd have gone you know, mad. I mean, I have to say that, you know, my year master at college, I'd done four years of architecture 
and he invented the gap year that would never, you know, which was to say, listen, go on, you can have a year off, give it a go, you can come back and re, you know, get back onto your course. Sadly, I've never been able to get back. The formation of the name, most know about it, but many out there who are listening do not know the origins of Pink Floyd and how the band, which was previously Sigma Six, right? Well, the answer is I can't actually remember whether we were the Megadeth, Sigma Six, Leonard's Lodgers. (laughs) There were various, and we were definitely at one point called... Uh, in fact, just before we changed to Pink Floyd, we were called the T-Cert. And what actually happened was we were playing this gig out, to, I think, North Old, North London. Uh, the, prom- the promoter there came backstage and said, OK, guys, you're on. I'm going to introduce you. What's the name of the band? And we said the T-Cert. And he <laughs> said, sorry, no, you can't be the T-Cert. They're on now. <laughs> so <laughs> that's funny. we did a new name fast. And Sid had got some of those old, you know, R&B records, yeah, which included some songs with Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And I think Sid just said, all right, then we're um, Pink Floyd. We could have been Anderson Council. <laughs> well, it kind, of, it kind of makes sense from what you were saying, though, too, also because of Freeform uh, yeah. and jazz and all that. And these were two jazz musicians. And, and so the, the fit of it all. But the road to time, and there's so much that we can get into, but the song Echoes, which it seemed to be a bridge going into Dark Side of the Moon, and Echoes is a song that you co-wrote as well. So is that, for those of you who don't know that song, it's incredible. It's um, something like 22 minutes, but it, it, it harkens really to Dark Side of the Moon. But was there an intentional... Did you see that there was something unique in that song that led you into the direction of going into the studio when you went into for Dark Side of the Moon? I don't think so. I think we were still playing around with how to make a record full stop. And I think, you know, I certainly see that there's a sort of, if you like it, there's a main road of albums that, uh, so we went from Piper to Source Full Secrets and then Metal and then Dark Side. And then Wish You Were Here, that those those albums sort of hang together and, and lead one to the other. And then a lot of the other things from the period, particularly something like uh, Atom Heart Mother, was actually a sort of uh, an alternate, an alternate trip, really, uh, and didn't relate certainly didn't relate to Dark Side, in fact, whereas uh, I, I've I certainly think Echoes had something to do. Although, funnily enough, Echoes and Shine On, You Crazy Diamond, probably the songs that sort of almost dovetail together in a way, in in the way they're approached and and recorded. Interesting. So when you went into, from Echoes and the album Metal, when you went into the studio or preparing to go into the studio for Dark Side, what was your state of mind and the band's state of mind at that point? Well, unlike almost any other album that we did, the great thing about Dark Side was that we did actually meet and talk about what we thought this album was going to be about. And there was this sort of idea that we would take the things that we were most anxious about ourselves, which was 
do with money and mortality and, and so on. And so there was an actual sort of plan there right from the beginning. And also, just around that sort of time, it was just before bootlegging <laughs> it. And so consequently, in, in some cases, some of the tracks, we were actually playing live, sort of really sort of developing them. And then that got sort of knocked on the head when everyone got panicky about bootlegging, which actually was less alarming than, than it's compared to pirating yeah. 50 years later. Yeah. It was nothing. But yeah, so that, so we had, you know, we actually uh, rehearsed in a way playing live, which is a very, very good way of working. The, the problem with going into a studio is that you tend to more or less feel you've got it when you just, when you play it properly you don't develop it that much you you just want to get it right and once you've got it right then you move on so for you going in as a drummer did you see your style evolve from the early obviously the songs the early albums are very different than as you get into the evolution to dark side of the moon and then beyond that but was there a how would you how would you describe your own growth as a drummer from that time? I think I'd probably describe it <laughs> sadly underwhelming. Come on now. <laughs> I was no, I think I was, you know, when you th look back to what was in some ways a, a golden period, I, I had these fantastic iconic drummers who I was constantly trying to copy. And of course, they were wildly different in how they did it and approached it. So Ginger Baker was enormously influential on me. If it wasn't for Ginger, I wouldn't be here now. It was seeing him with the double bass drum and in a band where the drummer was part of it rather than on a <laughs> on an orange box at the back. Right, right, right. Um, but then, you know, there was also Keith Moon. And then uh, for me, the, the other guy who was really influential was Mitch Mitchell, because we toured with Jimmy uh, in 67, 68 over Christmas. And I got to know Mitch. And I've, I still think he is, I, w I won't say sort of undervalued, because I think a lot of people recognize his, his brilliance, but his, his style is extraordinary in terms of pulling things back and keeping it light. And it wasn't a, the, the sort of heavy metal thrash of Ginger or, or Keith. He had something really unique. And I think uh, if that would be where I began to try and, and go myself. Well, it's interesting because you, you mentioned that something a little bit light and on many of the songs, well, on, I know the discography very, very well. And on all the song, or many or most of the songs, it is a light touch, a fairly light touch. Time is very different than that in many respects. And it's the, sig the, the percussion, the drums is such a signature part of that song. Do you recall, and I don't know if it was one continuous process where you were, you had these ideas as a band, like you said, you were talking about different things that scared you as individuals and that's how you approached it but do you recall actually sitting down together and writing time no i don't because i don't think when when i talk about what how we approached it i don't 
we initially approached it with a you know pen of paper and a pencil just writing down the ideas there was no music it was it was actually a, about agreeing on what the theme and the subject was and yeah. then Roger going away and writing lyrics and when you come to something like time I mean particularly given the Rototom intro section um that was absolutely spur of the moment in Studio 3 Abbey Road because someone had actually left a kit of a, a set of rototoms in the studio and they were due to be picked up by one of the percussion rental places. I'd never seen rototoms before. Interesting. And, and it was just one of those things where you go, hey, these are good. Let's let's see what we can do with these. It, it, well, I don't think anyone came to pick them up. I was going to say that, you know, we, it all had to be done in two hours in case a man arrived right right away uh, i don't think it was that bad but you know it was very much a case and and that would be true of some other tracks i imagine i can't quite remember but occasionally there would be something in the studio that we had access to certainly for instance i suspect we never would have owned a mellotron but i'm sure at some point uh, a Mellotron was available in the studio and they had a few other quite interesting instruments that were left there permanently. Pretty amazing. So there was just a, a, a great deal of serendipity, it sounds like, in terms of how the sounds came together with the ideas that you all had. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was of the time. I mean, the, the people, of course, who, who really kicked that off were, were the Beatles, particularly with, with not Giles Martin, that's the son, George, George Martin. Yeah. Out of Studio Two was coming flanging and phasing and, you know, all sorts of backward tape and backward echo and what have you. You know, there, there was a lot of stuff being discovered then. Was that the most adventurous album then, going into it and just freeing yourselves from being overly structured and allowing yourselves to pick up different uh, elements? Good, good question. Because in some ways, the album is is remarkably what's the word? Do do do. What do I think about that? It's not a sort of. It's not a loose album at all. It's actually a pretty uh, pretty strict really in the length of the sections and how it's recorded and how how it's put together and in fact particularly how it's put together it we were still seen as being this sort of wild psychedelic group but dark side is anything but that it, it's a very pretty carefully constructed <clears throat> piece of work i think Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. 
These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So at the the beginning of time, you have the what I've always felt in my head, the the almost like a horse's gallop, the that type of percussion. What was that choice that you had? You know the, uh, you know what I'm talking about, of course. The bump, 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 and then it breaks into oh, the, the tick tock, tick tock. Yes. Well, yeah. Beyond the clocks, though, the clock strike, and then you have the, the the rototoms. Well, the rototoms. Okay. So the rototoms, they were in the studio. It's you said that it was spur of the moment sort of thing, but was that apart from the music or the sounds that they made? Was that galloping pace? Was that something you already had in mind? No, I don't think, well, not that I remember. Um, you know, as I say, I, I think the the kickoff was the TikTok thing. So, but it, it funnily enough, the, the, the rototoms do play time related to the TikTok, but it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty loose, I suppose is what I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then it breaks in to the song itself with with and the drums. There you get away from the the light touch, and it's back into a sort of band playing. But I think you know the other thing that I mentioned because I, I think it's really important when one's talking about the success of Dark Side and the fiftieth anniversary <laughs> is. That Roger's lyrics are so extraordinarily relevant to, you know, written by a twenty-three-year-old, but relevant to a fifty-year-old. Yeah, that that's definitely part of, you know, part of the story, and certainly to do the longevity. And then one day you find ten years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. What? It's just a. That's one of the lyrics that goes down in. It, in time memoriam you know forever yeah. and it's it's truly it's truly that way so was was it a difficult album to make enjoy uh, was it enjoyable for you was it a difficult album uh definitely enjoyable and not particularly difficult i, I mean it took a while it took quite a while to do but in a way it was nothing like as difficult <laughs> as the follow-up album as wish you were here where we really cast around for quite a while to find any sort of starting point uh, i mean i think dark side we we had we were i was not naive but we were fairly young and fairly sort of fresh and fairly anxious to get on with it all because we not only made dark side we did the uh, the film of pink floyd at pompeii yeah um and we did a whole raft of gigs uh during that that year so going into the album then you did or, and as you were recording it you didn't feel pressure of any kind is that correct like you didn't feel at that point in your career that there was a it was more an enjoyable experience it, is that the way it felt to you yeah i i mean i think 
we we were not naive enough to think that this album was going to change our lives. You know, yeah. there's no guarantees of anything like that. So we were really enjoying, I think, enjoying making it and developing it and so on. <clears throat> sort of pressure comes later when, um, you know, when you've set a set a standard or set a bar. Yeah. Uh, one number one, are you going to get another one? Well, yeah, I, I can imagine. So there's... We could go through the whole album, but there's just for a limited time. But the great gig in the sky again, another just uh, an amazing song, and that it's almost like a duet with you, with the drums, and with Claire Tory, who's the singer, the vocalist on that. And was that free form with you and her in the studio? How did that come together? Well, we'd done the back basically. The, we constructed a backing track. Claire came from Alan Parsons, who met her, and she was a, a classical singer, yeah. really. And she came in, and I think I suspect she got three or four different ideas of what we thought it should be. Um, there was very little direction. I mean, I remember at the time talking about Kathy Barbarian, who uh, was a singer who did a lot of very modern classical music, which would have been a, a, a bit, it wouldn't have been quite right, right for what we actually ended up with. And uh, it was very much her just being given really rather unhelpful directions and told to more or less, well, see what you do. I can't remember how many passes we did, but it, it was sort of one session and a session was about three hours. So, I mean, it was less than three hours of of singing and recording to get to get that to get that track. So it it was quite freeform then. So it was essentially yeah. okay. Here you go, <laughs> take off with it. Do yeah. do what feels good, which is pretty incredible. Actually, so that timeless, amazing song took three hours. At least the vocal took three hours. Yeah, and probably less than that. Probably half of that. So from start to finish, from going into the studio to being finished with that album, how long was that overall process? Well, difficult to say, around six months, because we kept taking time off to do other other things. In yeah. particular, the Pompeii film was made during the recording of Dark Side. And I remember because we were also trying to fit gigs in at the same time, we had to cancel some of the gigs in order to finish to finish the filming, not not the album, that delayed things. And in fact, uh, we found ourselves a year later having to fulfil some of the gigs that we'd cancelled. At the time we cancelled them, we could fill a theatre. A year later, we could <laughs> fill a stadium. So when you finished the recording, did you know that this was special? We knew it was the best thing we'd done by far. But we also knew that there was no guarantee that that would bring success or that people would necessarily like it. We were sort of disappointed with what had happened in America over the our first five years because we were sort of making progress, but not quite, you know, not quite bre really breaking through. Um, so it was... You know, it was enormously satisfying when when the album did go to number one. 
So how do you feel as a, a young man who obviously you had had as a band, you had great successes, but nothing at the level of that. So when that is so transformation and transformational in one's life, how does that feel? How do you even absorb that as a young man at that point? Well, I think a lot of it sort of breezed past us in a way because we were very busy sort of playing America and touring. And consequently, we didn't spend that much time sort of congratulating ourselves (laughs) at all. I mean, it's curious, really. It gave us more leeway in terms of production values. And I think we we got really quite involved in how we were going to make this work and what else we could do to make the show work. Because we were still at that point where we weren't... band that people still are to some extent, a band that was recognisable. So we were still caught up in this. People were beginning to use television and uh, video with the shows. So we got involved a lot more in making films to go with the shows rather than expecting to show ourselves on big screens. And so you actually get stuck in into the work rather than, as I say, rather than endless presentations and dinner. Yeah. Well, again, that and that was always from the very beginning. The visuals was such a huge part of the show. And it was almost the visuals and the band was there as if you didn't want to be overly noticed, you know, as a yeah. right. Um, so when you first saw the album cover, <laughs> what what was your reaction? Um, I think we all had the same reaction. Uh, I think Poe and Storm, they brought brought down to the studio a whole bunch of ideas. And I can't remember what all those ideas were. All I remember is all of us saw the prism and went, yes, that's it. That would be great. And in fact, I think they were rather irritated with the fact that we all went, that's great. That's what we want. Go and do it. No, we don't want to see all your other horrid pictures. And so they packed up all the other pictures, which then appeared on all sorts of other albums with other people. And probably that's interesting uh, on, on a, some of our albums as well. I mean, they were very prolific, Storm and Bone. Yeah, well, and it's fascinating that how big, how massive that has become and how lasting that too has become and and just part of the de- definition of who you are as a band. And it's non-literal. It's not certainly not obvious when you think of Dark Side of the Moon or Pink Floyd to have that prism. So it's it's quite remarkable, actually. How do you feel about the album 50 years later? Like, what what is your overall reaction to it all? Well, first of all, very proud of it. I think there's all sorts of aspects to it that are, are terrific. And I think, uh, you know, it's enormous credit to EMI and Abbey Road because we're talking about a 50-year-old album that still sounds terrific. It's still a great stereo test record, probably like most people when you listen to it there are things that i would if i could i I would change funnily enough i think i'd mess around a bit with the running order of the record but that's interesting why in 
Tell us a little bit more about that. I don't know. I think it's because on the run, I'll tell you why I think it's probably something I think about, because I think live, it would have been better to have had the on the run track let further into the album. Hmm. But that's just, you know, that's... <laughs> nonsense really but it's perfectly good as it is yeah it worked i think it worked out okay <laughs> okay so let's go back in time a little bit to the namesake for your new band that you formed a few years ago saucer full of secrets nick mason's saucer full of secrets and go back to that album saucer full of secrets because there's obviously there's something special in that that led you to forming the band with this name so tell us about that very different album and why it did become the origin for your band that's touring now? Well, I think, first of all, I have a great soft spot for Saucer. It has all sorts of hints and clues as to where we might go later on. And it also deals with all sorts of things like a sort of goodbye to Sid. I still think Jug Band Blues is one of the most tragic. That's the song I was going to ask you about, oh, right. about, about well, Jug Band Blues. I absolutely love it. And I think it's the saddest sort of goodbye song ever. And that whole thing with the song itself and then the silver band from the Salvation Army. It's And that's just one song. And for me as well, there's also <clears throat> Set the Controls, which have, is a great track for a drummer. Because oh yeah, it, it's so basically. I don't think I've ever played it exactly the same ever. There's a, there'd always be something that's a little bit different. Or, Would it even be possible to play it exactly the same? Yeah, well, I couldn't do it. But <laughs> I don't know if anybody could do it. But that's it is what's magical about it. But Jug Band Blues is the song that I was going to ask you about from Saucer, which is your second studio album, and where the first album and. For all you Pink Floyd fans out there, obviously, you know this, but Sid was very much up in front and very, and I think he wrote most of the songs. And But yet now we get to Saucerful and Sid, this is the song that ends that album. And it's Sid's only song contribution on that album. And the first lyrics from that song, which is quite haunting, actually. And I've seen the videos, too. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm awfully considerate, considerate of you think of me here, and I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here. <laughs> and was was there a message, do you believe, to the rest of you? Oh, yeah, I think so. Or certainly, if not to us, to the world at large. Yeah, I think so. I think that's absolutely right. What What was the mood like recording that with Sid, where it was, he was in a very different position with the band at that time, after such a short period of time with the with the success of the first album. Yeah, I mean, it was very much, that was the, the last knockings, really, of, of Sid. And after that, it, it ends the album, but it certainly wasn't the last thing we recorded. <clears throat> because what we actually were doing was getting ready really to to carry on without Sid and when when I look back on it I think it's really quite in a way surprising because at that point Roger had written one song Doctor Doctor which not 
his greatest work, in my opinion. But somehow there was some element of confidence that made us think we could carry on without Sid. And I still, to this day, am puzzled by that because it it would appear that, you know, you'd think that we were about to just fold it, fold it up and go back to architecture or whatever. <laughs> but the reality was that there was still enormous amount of drive and enthusiasm. And we did think we could carry on and we could do something. Which itself is a remarkable thing after the first album where Sid was so much up and out front. And so when it was when Sid's song, which it wasn't the last song you recorded, but it was placed last on the album. Was that intentional? Was that almost yeah. a farewell? Yeah. Everything's yes. You, you don't sort of. You, there are many happy and unhappy hours spent trying to run the running order of, of yeah. an album. Yeah. Uh, we must. I've, I don't remember it, but I know that we would have considered it very carefully for quite a long time. And then you mentioned the Salvation Army Band at the very end, at the fade out, and you have this cacophony, really. Yeah. And how did that happen? Well, I think it probably owes some, quite a lot to Sergeant Pepper ah. in terms of how did that happen. I suspect the hand of Norman Smith, maybe. but Or maybe, yeah, that's the sort of thing where I just don't remember yeah. how we got there. But there, that was absolutely sort of how we went about messing around with the recording. Business. I really urge everybody out there, if you haven't listened to the album Saucer Full of Secrets, you must. And you know the entire album and then get to the last song that was Sid's last song for Pink Floyd. The And Jug Band Blues is, is really haunting. And also look up that video to see that performance because that also is pretty haunting. Okay. So, and you chose that album, the second album, for the name of your band, rather than the first Piper for the name of your band. Was it, uh, you mentioned a little bit, but was it because that album was just more in line with your, just your sensibilities than the first album? And Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we, we do do a number of the tracks that Sid wrote and some of the singles. But I think that sort of launch into <clears throat> slightly freer, a freer style of playing and recording was something, a, a sort of moment that I'm particularly fond of. Yeah. Well, I hope you come to the United States so we can see and listen to that part of the tour or that part of your background and the music that you play. So now with that, I want to get into a little bit of extra credit, Nick. I would just go through a lightning round of different things and, and that I want to ask you about. So in this great discography in 50 years of, Pink, of Dark Side of the Moon, but then obviously the band continued on for many, many years. What is your favorite Pink Floyd song if you had to choose one? Well, the trouble is it depends on sort of what sort of basis. I mean... In terms of prob probably the cleverest song that's fun to play is something like Comfortably Numb. Mm. Uh, first of all, because it's got one of the most, the drum part is as, about as sparse as one could possibly make it in, in the first verses, which I really like. And then there's a, 
a sort of lovely, you know, full-on guitar anthem at the end, with which is again great to play along with. Yeah, and, you know, and, and and very free in terms of how it's done and what to do. You can sort of more or less uh, certainly take the lead guitar part and follow that, and it'll be different. I, I love that thing where things are different. You don't play it exactly the same every every time. Yeah, this gets back to the free form from the very beginning, you know, the band's roots. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. What would you say is your, what would you be most proud of in your career and your crowning achievement? <laughs> well, longevity, managing to, managing to stay around yeah. for 50 something years of playing. I don't really know because I don't think there's sort of one thing, I think. And you, you occasionally get that thing where someone comes up and tells you how much the music meant to them. And I think that's a moment where it's a little bit humbling and a little bit where you think, oh, good. Well, that's really nice to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's the sort of element that you think, yeah, that was a good thing to do. Okay, so now going to Momentary Lapse of Reason and the song Learning to Fly. Mm -hmm. So that is your voice that you hear from yeah. your... <laughs> from your first solo flight, no, correct? No, it wasn't my first solo. It oh, it was, wasn't? Okay. No, no, no. That, I don't think we ever thought of recording a first solo flight. There's far too much to do. But, but was that was that so your voice? It, was, it is my voice. And in fact, what I was doing was I was training to fly a twin-engined plane at the time. And so I was with my instructor, I can't remember whether it was at Biggin Hill or, or where it was, but it was slightly more elaborate because in terms of the radio, because you've got a two engine thing and you've got yeah. an undercarriage and it's a, it's a bit more technical. So it seemed to work quite well as a piece of uh, audio. So do you like flying more or do you enjoy driving at speed more? Because there's clearly a speed element to every, everything you do, which is very different than, than your drumming, which is a more of a light touch. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I played the drums to relax. Yeah, <laughs> which is um, funny. No, I, I, for me, what what's great is the fact that all these various things complement each other. You know, there's something great about uh, motorsport because you're on your own in the car. There's there's no one else there to help you or tell you what you should be doing. Are um, you still Are you still doing that? Are you still racing? Uh, well, I'm more or less just saying i'm gonna stop i think as i hurtle towards my 80s i think there's a point at which elderly rock drummers shouldn't be allowed out in racing cars <laughs> and i've got uh, most of my family have got competition licenses 
So I've got enough drivers really around me. That's interesting that others in the family, you've inspired them to speed on the motorway. Uh, well, no, I've got, I should perhaps make it clear that actually I've got some uh, rather, rather upmarket family members. I've got a <laughs> son-in-law and a bro his brother, who's Dario Franchitti, who was a sort of three times IndyCar winner. So, ah, wow. It's not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Um, his brother Marino is, is my son-in-law and Marino's really good as well so we've got it covered really on the driving yeah, yeah. any more flying or no you're not flying uh, yeah no still flying but helicopters really yeah okay well there you more go more interesting so <laughs> so you have a the tour coming up and do you have any new music that you're working on uh, no, we might. We're always sort of looking at the uh, repertoire, and but it, it was very clear that what this was going to be was a, a sort of a look at the early days of Pink Floyd, up, up to but not including Dark Side, because once you get to Dark Side, everyone knows the songs backwards and they want to hear it exactly as it was on the record. What's so great about the earliest work is that we can play it in the spirit of, yeah. of what it was. And I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, of course, and I just happen to have it here. I want to show you this, Nick. I, I, do, I do happen to have your book, which is, for those of you who are Pink Floyd fans out there, Inside Out, Personal History of Pink Floyd. This is Nick wrote this many, many years ago. And I, this is not just something I purchased now. This is something I, I bought back back then, back in the day. And it's pretty fascinating. It has wonderful photographs in it too. So there's the book. Other projects that you have right now that that are taking your time or that you're focusing on? Um, well, no, I have to say main focus is going back on the road and sort of preparing for that, I suppose. But there, there are always other interesting things that were involved in. I mean, the big thing was the exhibition we did at the V&A Museum in London about yeah. four or five years ago. Well, that's sort of recently just been in Montreal and I think is about to be moved to Toronto. And that's been a really interesting exercise. It's been great to work with Hypnosis again, but also Mark Fisher's company, Stu Fish. There's opportunities to, to sort of use some of the things that we've done over the years and, and make something else out of them. Yeah, no, that's an immersive exhibition for those of you out there. And it was in Los Angeles, too, after it was in London and just smashed it in London. And, you know, I hope it comes back to Southern California, too. Was it in New York City, Nick? Uh, not yet. And I think probably will that will be on the cards for the future. Yeah. Okay, and then I would be remiss to ask, to not ask, is it ever possible that the band will come together? I have to ask for everybody out there. I think it's highly unlikely. <laughs> I think, but I would have said that before Live 8 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was. The one thing I could think would be possible would be if there was some, if by getting back together, we could influence either saving the planet, world peace, or whatever, whatever hopefully would step up. But I don't think 
Yeah, otherwise it would take it would take a Nelson Mandela or someone like that to lead on on, on it. Well, look, if there's anything on the planet that would bring people together, it would be Pink Floyd coming back together. Like that would be a momentary non-lapse of reason where people would get together and the, the whole planet would tune in on that one. So everybody out there, Nick didn't completely shut it down, which is which is you know, gives a glimmer of hope that there's a possibility that that will happen. So, Nick, you it's 50th anniversary, Dark Side of the Moon, Saucer Full of Secrets. Your band will be touring later this year. You have your book, and I think you have a second book that's out there, too. Thank you very much for giving us the guided tour of the beginnings of the band and Dark Side of the Moon and then getting into Saucer Full of Secrets, too, which is a gem that people should discover if you haven't discovered it yet. So, Nick, really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining. Okay, very welcome. That was Nick Mason of legendary band Pink Floyd sharing his story behind the band's timeless track Time from the album The Dark Side of the Moon, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. I'm your host, Peter Chotty. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotty. That's P as in Peter, C as in cat, S like Sam, A like Apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like Yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.